encourage you to take out your Bibles this evening and follow along to test the things I have to say to see if it is by the Word of God. If we find it to be such, I hope we'll take an apply in our lives. We could all leave here being better servants of God in the future than we have been in the past. Go ahead and be turning to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 will begin there in just a moment. We have been over the last several weeks, this, uh, the last couple of weeks, in a series of lessons about the Bible, some basic biblical principles that are the lessons for the home Bible study series that I've been working to put together. And we saw in our first lesson, we asked the question, is the Bible God's Word? Really, everything else we explore is pointless if we come to the conclusion the Bible is not God's Word. So we asked the question, is the Bible the Word of God? And we looked at the evidence from the resurrection, and we saw that if Jesus truly was raised from the dead, then it proves Him to be who He claimed to be. It proves Him the Son of God. And if He is the Son of God, then His Word is true, and the Bible is true. And we looked at the evidence of that, from the empty tomb to the change in the disciples, the change in, in the enemies of our Lord, the change in Saul of Tarsus and the list of the witnesses that we went through and came to the conclusion the resurrection did happen. Then we looked at the prophecy as evidence of the Bible being God's Word. The fact that there were prophecies fulfilled, so many prophecies, we'll see some of them later on tonight in our study this evening, fulfilled about Jesus. And we saw the statistic that, that Peter Stoner did in the book Science Speaks where the odds of one man fulfilling eight prophecies was, was one in ten to the seventeenth power. And yet Jesus fulfilled over three hundred of those, and it shows the Bible to be the Word of God. We also looked at the prophecies about nations like Egypt and Babylonia, and how those came to pass exactly as it was told, and that proves the Bible to be God's Word. We looked at the unity of the Bible. The fact that it was written in a compilation of 66 books, written over a 1,500-year period by some four, about 40 writers in three different languages, and yet there's perfect, there is perfect agreement and a common theme among all 66 books. We talked about the survival of the Bible. There were Bible burnings in the Dark Ages. It was Voltaire that said, within 50 years the Bible will no longer be discussed among educated people, and yet we are still discussing it today. The fact that despite all the attacks, the Bible still has endured shows it to be the Word of God. And then lastly, we saw in that lesson that the Bible is completely and totally inspired. It's not just the thoughts, but the very words are inspired. These things we also speak, 1 Corinthians 2.13, not in words which men's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Then we saw last week, we talked about, does it matter what we believe about the Bible? We looked at, the, at four stories. We talked about Cain and Abel and the story of Genesis chapter 4 and how the fact that Abel's sacrifice was by faith but Cain's was not. Abel's was accepted and Cain's was not and therefore it mattered what they believed. We looked at Nadab and Abihu and how they offered unauthorized or profane or strange fire and they were killed because of it. It mattered what they believed. It tells us in verse 1 they broke the veil of the commandment of God. We talked about the young prophet from Judah who believed the lie of the older prophet instead of the truth that God had spoke to him. And because of it, it cost him his life. He perished. And we talked about those that heard the lie from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. And now it said that if those that believed the lie would perish or be condemned. 
Just like the young prophet out of Judah, those that believe the lie today will perish be condemned, but it won't be perishment or condemning, a perishing like the young prophet who died, but it'll be eternal punishment and eternal condemnation. And we came to the conclusion from all that that it matters then what we believe about the Bible. And so we need to make sure to test the things that we hear, that it is truthfully by the Word of God, that all that is spoken is truth. Make sure we spend time in study of the Word of God so that we're, we're doing our part. We're making sure that we're practicing exactly what the Bible teaches because it matters what we believe. But in lesson number one, when we talked about the unity of the Bible, we mentioned that there was a complete agreement and a common theme throughout the entire Bible. But what is that theme of the Bible? If there's a common theme, what is it? What is the common theme of the Bible? You go from Genesis to Revelation and you read through and you read a story about the people of Israel or something else that takes place or you hear about this nation over here or that nation over there. Do you think, how is that a common theme from the Old to the New Testament? But throughout the entire Bible, the entire message is focused on the coming of the Messiah or the Christ. Those are the same, that mean the same thing. Messiah was from the Hebrew word meaning anointed one, and Christ is from the Greek term meaning anointed one. So when we use those terms, they can be used interchangeably. They're both referring to Jesus. So when we use the term Messiah or Christ this evening, we're talking about the same person. But this evening, I want us to focus on the three main divisions of the Bible. There, there are many ways we can divide the Bible up. But there are three main divisions we can take and we can look at when it comes to the theme of the Bible. So let's start in the Old Testament. The theme of the Old Testament is the Messiah is coming. If you haven't already, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We'll talk about the first messianic prophecy. In Genesis chapter 3 and in verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. If you remember when we were studying through the book of Romans not that long ago, it talks about that by Adam, that talks about by Adam came death and talks about sin. And the point that is being made in Romans chapter 5 from that is that in the end, ultimately, the sin, while it's attributed to Adam, Eve may have sinned first, but when Adam sinned, sin became universal in nature. There were two people on earth. There was Adam and there was Eve. When Eve sinned, half of the world's population had sinned, but when Adam sinned, sin became universal in nature. And so because of the universality of sin, there was need for a sacrifice. Remember in Romans chapter 3, 20 and 21, that the point is made in Romans chapter 3 that the law could not justify, so that in verse 21, the righteousness of God apart from the law was revealed, um, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The reason being, verse 24, that we're being justified freely by His grace and that God has set forth a propitiation by the blood of Christ. So before we go any farther and we talk about what's going to be taking place in these texts that are going to point forward to the death of the Christ, we need to understand because sin is universal in Genesis chapter 3, there was demanded a blood sacrifice that sins could be forgiven. And we know from Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10 that the blood of bulls and goats was insufficient to do such a thing. 
And so there was need for a better sacrifice. That's what Hebrews 9 and 10 is dealing with. And so because there was need for a better sacrifice, in Genesis chapter 3, when sin becomes universal in nature, there is now need for a Messiah. There is now need for one to be that sacrifice that they could have the forgiveness of sins. So look at Genesis chapter 3 and in verse 15. Remember, sin is now universal in nature. All have sinned. Romans 3.23, and at this point, all have sinned. And in verse 15 it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There are really three main components to this promise, to this first messianic prophecy. Number one, it's the seed of woman. If you're reading through the Bible for the very first time and you come to Genesis 3.15, it will be quite confusing. What is he saying of the seed of woman and enmity between the seed of woman and then between the serpent? Well, we know from the book of Isaiah chapter 7 and in verse 14, in Isaiah 7 and in verse 14, that therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a sign. And you shall call his name Emmanuel. And so when he's saying here of the seed of woman in Genesis chapter 3 and in verse 15, this is an allusion to the virgin birth of Christ. Remember Galatians chapter 4 and in verse 4? In Galatians 4, 4 it talked about in the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, Galatians 4, 4. The Messiah that was to come, Genesis 3.15 and Isaiah 7.14 point out, was going to be born of a virgin. Galatians 4.4 tells us that's exactly what happened. From the first Messianic prophecy, it was prophesied that Jesus would be born of a virgin. But from the first Messianic prophecy, not only was it prophesied of His virgin birth, it was prophesied of His death. That is Satan bruising the hill. Look again in verse 15 of Genesis 3. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We'll come back to the bruising of the head in a moment, but let's deal first with the latter part of that and the bruising of the heel. In the death of Christ, the heel was bruised. That's what he's pointing out. If you bruise your heel, it can recover. The bruising of the heel may seem something that, that is not of a major ordeal. And in Satan, in the death of Christ, it seems Satan had, Satan probably thought he had won at that point. But in reality, he had simply bruised the hill of the Messiah. That is the death of Christ. That's the, the hill that is bruised here is a reference to the death of Christ. But not only do we have the death of Christ, we have here mentioned the resurrection. The Messiah would crush Satan's head or bruise Satan's head. Some translations say crush. If you had a snake, especially a poisonous snake, and you knew you were going to bruise your heel in the process of killing the snake so that it did not harm you, but you were going to crush its head, you'd probably take the bruised heel over the serpent being able to get you. And the picture depicted here is, is that as he goes, that the hill is bruised. But ultimately, the hill may have been bruised, but the head of the snake was crushed. 
Satan bruised the hill of Christ. The hill of Christ was bruised in his death, but his death was ultimately what would lead to the victory because there we would have the resurrection and there the head of the serpent was crushed. So in Genesis 3.15, he's pointing to the virgin birth of Christ, he's pointing to the Messiah's death and the Messiah's resurrection in Genesis 3 and in verse 15. Be turning with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. We now know in Genesis 12 that the Messiah is of the seed of Abraham and that it would be through this seed that all nations of the earth would be blessed. In, in, in Genesis chapter 12 and in verse 3 it reads, And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now turn to chapter 22. Genesis 22. Look at verse 18. This is after the, the sacrifice, or better yet, the attempted sacrifice of, of Isaac. And it is said after this has all taken place in verse 18, Indeed, in, or in, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. It's in the seed of Abraham all nations of the earth will be blessed. We know that that is a reference to Christ because in Galatians chapter 3, in Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 15, Paul takes and applies that to Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 15, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet it is confirmed no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. Remember, Messiah and the Christ are one and the same. It's anointed one. It's the Hebrew term and the Greek term. So Paul takes in Galatians chapter 3 and says this promise made back here in Genesis 12 and particularly 22 and 18 is a reference to Christ. Because now in Christ, because of His death, His burial, and His resurrection, we can have the forgiveness of sins. More about that later on. But because of that, all nations can be blessed because now all can be saved. And so in the seed of Abraham, all nations of the earth would be blessed. Not only is it prophesying of the coming Messiah that He was in the seed of Abraham, but it was prophesied that He would be a prophet like Moses. Look at Deuteronomy 18. When you go through in the, the New Testament, there will be, and we will see this occurrence later on in our study when we get to the second division of our lesson and the second division of Scriptures. But in the, in the Gospels, you may have the question raised of, are you the prophet? The prophet is a reference back to the text for fiction reading Deuteronomy 18. Not asking the question, are you a prophet, but are you the prophet? Here's what they're referring to. Deuteronomy 18.15 The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. Look at verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, this is the Lord speaking to Moses, from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. 
So when you come into the New Testament, and we'll see this later in John 1, and the question is raised, are you the prophet? Not are you a prophet, as in one of many prophets, but are you the prophet? That's the prophet that is promised in Deuteronomy 18, 15 and 18. Are you the one that is like Moses? And we'll see that when we get into the New Testament later on. But not only was it prophesied that he would be a prophet like Moses... It was prophesied that he would be of the seed of David. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel 7 is where David desires to build a house for God. And remember, Nathan the prophet told him it seemed like a great idea, but then Nathan was sent back to tell him, no, his son would build the temple. But if you drop down to verse, to verse 13 beginning, or verse, back to verse 12 beginning, we have a prophecy that is given that has, this is a dual prophecy. It has a partial fulfillment in Solomon and an ultimate fulfillment in Christ. There are prophecies like that. They may have a partial fulfillment in one, in one man, but an ultimate fulfillment in Christ. We'll see that here as we go through the text. Look at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, when you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. That's true of both Solomon and of Christ. Both were of the seed of of David. Both would have their kingdom set up or established. Look beginning at verse 13. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He would build a house for God. That had a partial fulfillment in Solomon who builds the temple, but an ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Because we know that the church is the house of God, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 15. So it had a partial fulfillment in Solomon, but an ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Look at verse 14. I will be his father and he shall be my son. We'll talk more about this later, but Jesus the Messiah is the Son of God. Solomon could be called a son of God if he was faithful servant to him. We know this has reference to Solomon as well because it says, If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. And Jesus was perfect, but Solomon was but a man. And we know it has an ultimate fulfillment in Christ because the throne was established forever. Look at verse 13 again. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Skip down into verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. I ask you, is there somebody of the seed of David sitting on a physical throne today? Is there somebody of the seed of David still ruling over Israel today? That hasn't taken place for a long time. But it has its ultimate fulfillment in Christ, whose kingdom would be until his enemies were made his footstool, according to the 110th Psalm. Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies thy footstool. It may have had a partial fulfillment in Solomon, but the ultimate fulfillment is in Christ, who would build the house for God, who was God's Son, and His throne would be established forever and would remain until the end of time. So we know from 2 Samuel chapter 7 that the Messiah is of the seed of David. You see, there's all these stories taking place, but as we move through, we still have prophecies about the Christ. And we're hitting just a few. 
We're going to hit one more in the Old Testament before we go to the New. We're going to hit just five. Yet there are over 300 talking about Jesus. Turn to Isaiah 53. Look at one more in the Old Testament and then we'll move on to our next point. Isaiah 53, the Messiah would suffer. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Listen to what is described here of the Messiah from Isaiah 53. Look at verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. It was described of Christ that there would be no physical beauty. This isn't the kind of person they looked at and followed because Jesus was just so much better looking than everybody else and that he just looked the part. There would be no physical beauty according to verse 2. That's not why people follow Him. Look at verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men. It was foretold that Jesus would be rejected by men. Not only is He rejected by the Jewish leaders of His day, He's rejected by those of His own hometown. Jesus would be rejected by men. That's foretold in Isaiah 53. But look at this. He was smitten for others' transgressions. Look at verses 5 and 6. You might want to highlight these in your Bible. These are important things to remember in Isaiah 53. Look beginning at verse 4. Back up to verse 4. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, verse 4. Look at verse 5. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. Look at the latter half of verse 6. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look at the end of verse 8. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. Look at the end of verse 11. For he shall bear their iniquities. And in verse 12, And he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It's not because of something that Jesus did that Jesus is put to death. Jesus is going to be put to death. The Messiah is going to be put to death because of the sins of others. Remember, we already talked about the fact that in order for God to be both just and the justifier, Romans chapter 3, that there was going to have to be a sacrifice. God is all-powerful and He could have just forgiven us, but then He would not be just because we had violated the commands of God. And so in order to be just and both the justifier, there had to be a sacrifice, and that's the Messiah that's prophesied of in Isaiah 53. There was no fault found with Him. You remember in the trial of Jesus, they had to bring people forward to make up some stories and to take and twist things to be able to put Him to death. But He made Him that knew no sin to be sin. That is, He that knew no sin died for our sins. He died as a criminal. He died between criminals. That's pointed out in verse 9, and we'll get there in a second. But He died for the sins of us and not for His own transgressions. Look at verse 7. He would give no defense. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
Here he is put on trial for something he didn't do, but for the sins of others. And it's prophesied back in Isaiah 53 that the Messiah is going to give no defense of himself. When you come into the New Testament and you look in the Gospel accounts of the crucifixion of our Lord, He gives no defense of Himself. He was as the lamb that led to the slaughter as the sheep before its shearers, just as Isaiah 53 pointed out. Verse 9 points out that He would die with the wicked. And they made His grave with the wicked. Again, if you did not know anything about Jesus and you were passing by Golgotha on the day He's put to death, you would have thought He was a criminal just like the others there. Here you have two thieves put to death on either side of Him. If you would have known nothing, you would have thought this was a wicked man. He must have done some terrible things. He was put to death with the wicked. He was put to death with the criminals. But, in his, but He was buried with the rich. But with the rich in His death. Remember, Joseph of Arimathea takes his body and wraps it up and puts it in a new tomb. He may have died with the common criminals, but he was buried with the rich. He was buried in the tomb of the rich. That's all prophesied of in Isaiah 53. And when we get to the New Testament, we find it take place exactly as it was foretold. The Old Testament is pointing to the fact the Messiah is coming. But not only does the Old Testament point to the fact the Messiah is coming, the Gospels point to the fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John point to the fact, the Messiah is already here. Look at Matthew chapter 1. By the very name given to Him. We already saw this foretold back in Isaiah chapter 7 and in verse 14 when we looked at the prophecy, when we passed through the prophecy about His virgin birth. And it quotes from it in Matthew 1.23 and says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. The Messiah, God in the flesh with us. It's God with us, Matthew 1.23. It was told that the Messiah had come in Luke chapter 2. Look at Luke chapter 2. The angels had told the good news of the birth of the Savior. Luke 2, 10 and 11. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring to you great ti- or good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. Listen who is Christ the Lord. You know what they just said when Jesus was born there? There was born this day in the city of David a Savior, Christ the Lord. Remember, Christ and Messiah, they're both mean anointed one. The Messiah that you've been looking for is born. Luke chapter 2 and in verse 10. According to John 1, he The Word became flesh and the Word was God. John 1, beginning at verse 1. Well-known passage to us all. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Let's skip down to verse 14. And the Word, the very Word that He said was God in verse 1, 
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. God became flesh. The Messiah had come. The Son of God had come. Significant that He is the Son of God because according to Philippians 2, that makes Him equal with God. Philippians 2 and in verse 5, the NIV reads, "...in your relationships with one another have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage." Here we see that the Word became flesh. The Word was God. Jesus is the Son of God. It tells us in Matthew 1.23 that it's God with us. God became flesh. The Son became flesh. And He is God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's what the Gospels are talking about. You still open to John 1, go down to verse 19. It was told by John that this was the Son of God, that this is the Messiah. I told you earlier we would see the use of the, of the phrase, the prophet. Look beginning at verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I'm not the anointed one. And they asked, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? That's the prophet we heard from Deuteronomy 18. And he answered, No. They asked who he was, and he said he's the voice of one, verse 23, crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as of the, uh, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. And they asked, why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, in verse 25. He said in verse 26, I baptize you with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, who coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. Look at verse 29. The very next day, here's what happens. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Skip down to verse 35 and 36. Again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. We see from Jesus' very name the Messiah coming. He's Emmanuel, God with us. We see that when he was born, the angels told that the Savior, the Christ, was born. We see in John 1, 1 through 4 and in verse 14, that God, that the Word which is God became flesh and dwelt among us. It is pointed to by John the Baptist that here, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But not only was it stated by John, it was stated by Jesus. Look at Luke 2. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 41. Remember in Luke 2, this is where Jesus at 12 years old, they go to the Passover. And as they're making their way back, they cannot find Him. And they search... Mary and Joseph searched for him. And for three days, verse 46, they, after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. 
And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. But they come to them in verse 48 and say, Son, why have you done this? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. Listen to what he says in verse 49. Why did you seek me? Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Remember, this is the Son of God. To those of the world, they may have thought that this was the son of Joseph. But when he says, must I be about my father's business, he's not talking about what was considered his earthly father, for he was a carpenter. But he's talking about God, must I not be about my father's business? He's there in the temple asking questions and answering the questions that are asked of him. What he just said was that he is the son of God in Luke 2, 41 through 50. But not only was it told by John, it was only was it told by Jesus, it was stated by the Father Himself. In Matthew chapter 3, we have the baptism of Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 3, in verse 17, it says, And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And in Matthew chapter 17, in Matthew chapter 17, at the Mount of Transfiguration, It says, while he was still speaking, behold, a a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. The Father has just said that Jesus is his Son. He's pointing to him as being the Messiah. And even the enemies of our Lord realized that in his death, when in Matthew 27, 54, In Matthew 27 and verse 54, the centurion that was standing there where they saw the earthquake and all the things that took place at the death of our Lord said, truly this was the Son of God. He is who He claimed to be. He is the Son of God. He is God Himself. He's equal with God. And it was proven in his death and in the things that took place there with the earthquake and the splitting of the the veil of the temple and all that that took place at his death. Even the centurion standing there realized this is the Son of God. You see, the Gospels are pointing to the fact the Messiah was presently there. Then Acts through Revelation point to the fact the Messiah has already come once and He will come again. In fact, that's what the preaching is based on. Look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, as Peter gives his sermon here on the day of Pentecost, he begins back at verse 14 by answering really with their accusations that they were drunk, and he answers it by pointing to Joel 2 and saying, this is what Joel spoke of that was going to take place. But beginning at verse 22, he shifts from talking about that and the coming of the Holy Spirit to talking, to preaching a lesson about Jesus, in particular His resurrection from the dead. Here's what he says in verses 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that He should be held by it. 
Now, as you move throughout this sermon, he quotes from the 16th Psalm in 25 through 28. A Psalm of David and makes application that when he says, you will not allow or leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption, that David was talking about the Messiah. He points out in verse 29 that David's still dead and buried with and buried here today. He goes back to the Old Testament in a prophecy in Psalm 16 and makes application to Jesus. Listen to what he says in verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. What he just said was, David understood that, that the, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, was going to be raised up of the seed of David to sit on the throne. You know what he just alluded to right there? Second Samuel chapter 7 in the text we saw earlier. David understood that. That's why he prophesied of the Messiah whose soul would not undergo see corruption, who would not be allowed to undergo decay. Drop down to verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heaven... But he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He just took the 110th Psalm that we alluded to earlier and made application to the Christ. Made application to Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ. And listen to the conclusion when he comes to the end of his sermon in verse 36. This is the key verse of the entire sermon of Peter. This is the grand conclusion reached based on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. The very Jesus that you put to death out of jealousy, the very Jesus you crucified has been made, listen, both Lord and Christ. David spoke concerning the Christ, according to verse 30. That He'd be of the seed of David. And here is Jesus, who's of the seed of David, who by His, his resurrection, it is proved that He is the Christ. He's the Messiah that's been pointed to all the way back from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. He died, and that was the bruising of the hill of Genesis 3.15. And He crushed the head of Satan, that was the resurrection. And Peter takes and points to that right here in Acts chapter 2. He's preaching of the Messiah who has already come. Paul does the same thing in Acts 13. In Acts chapter 13, in Acts 13, beginning at verse 23, and we won't go through all of this, but he takes and he talks about some passages that applies them to Christ. In verse 33, God has fulfilled this, f- fulfilled this for us, their children, and that He raised up Jesus... Also, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son today, I have begotten you. You know what, what, what Paul just did there? He just in the, took from the New Testament and pointed all the way back to the Old Testament of the coming of, of the Messiah and made the point that that applies to Jesus. He's already come. Look what he says down in verse 34. I will, quoting from Isaiah 55, and in verse 3, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Then he quotes from the same psalm in verse 35 that Peter did back on the day of Pentecost and the 16th psalm in verse 10, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. He takes the mixed application of that to Christ. This is what was prophesied of the Christ. This is exactly what took place in Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is the Messiah and the Messiah has already come. He preached him again in Acts chapter 17, 30 and 31. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. 
He's given assurance of this by raising Him from the dead. He's talking about Jesus Christ. But not only was it that what was preached, we need to understand, while this is important because it was preached, we need to understand what that means for us today. It means, first and foremost, we have the forgiveness of sins. Look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now listen to what he's going to say here in verses 3 and 4. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, that's into the Messiah, were baptized into His death? There's the death talked about. Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death. We died just as Jesus physically died. We died of sin. We were buried with Him through baptism. And when the, the baptism is the burial, just as He was buried in the tomb, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We were dead in our old trespasses and sins, so we died to sin. We were buried in the waters of baptism, and we rose to a new life. Just as Jesus physically died, He was buried in the tomb, and He rose again the third day. And because of that, we can have the forgiveness of sins. For if we have been united together, verse 5, in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, verse 6, that the body of sin might be done away with. Now we should no longer be slaves of sin. So what He just did there in Romans chapter 6 was just made the point that you've died to sin and you have the forgiveness of sins because of Jesus' death, His burial, and His resurrection. You can die to sin, be buried in the waters of baptism, and rise to walk in the newness of life. You have the forgiveness of sins because of Jesus Christ. But not only does it mean we have forgiveness of sins, it means we need to imitate Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and in verse 1, Paul said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. We need to imitate Christ. Paul said to imitate Him, but imitate Him only as He imitated Christ. In Galatians chapter 2, in a passage well known to all of us, in Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. You've been crucified with Christ. This is when you die to the old man of sin. That's pointed out in Romans chapter 6. And now it's no longer you that lives, but Christ that lives in you. And the life you live in the flesh, you live for Him. You live by faith in Him. We need to be imitators of Christ. And finally, we need to understand that because Christ came already and he's, He died and He was raised from the dead, He's coming again. In Acts 17, 30 and 31, again, where it talks about truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Listen, because He's appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He has ordained. And He's given assurance of this by raising Him from the dead. We're going to give an account someday for the way that we've lived our lives and, and we have assurance that Jesus is coming back and we're going to give an account because God raised Him from the dead according to Acts 17, 30 and 31. From Hebrews 9. In Hebrews chapter 9, beginning of verse 27, 
We go to Hebrews 9 often to talk about the fact that we die once. But here's the point. Jesus died once. As it is appointed, and as it is appointed men once to die. But after this, the judgment, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. That's one time for all time. He came and He died just once forever. To those who eagerly await for Him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. The ESV says He'll appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for Him. Ultimately, we're going to give an account because Jesus was raised from the dead and we have assurance He's going to come again. But when He comes the second time, the question is going to be, is it going to be for our punishment? Or are we going to have the reward because we were those that eagerly waited for Him? The Messiah has come and we have assurance He's coming again. Now, let's talk about some conclusions we reach from those three important principles. We've seen the Messiah will come in the Old Testament. The Messiah has come and is presently here in the Gospels and Acts to Revelation. He's already come and He's coming again. Here's what that means for us. It tells me if the entire Bible is focused on the message of the Messiah, the Christ, then that tells me that that the Messiah must be important. The fact that from Genesis all the way to Revelation are talking about Him. All the way back in Genesis 3.15 after the first sin, He's talked about. When you come to the book of Revelation, He's talked about again. That tells me He's important. And if Jesus is important, if the Christ is important, which we've seen is Jesus because it was attested by, by Jesus Himself, by John, by the Father. There were others that witnessed that He's the Son of God and that He is the Christ, the Anointed One. If that's the case, and there are some things that we need to learn, some important lessons we need to learn about the fact that Jesus is the Christ. Number one, since Jesus Christ is important, I must follow His Word because it's the standard by which I'm going to be judged. Look at John chapter 12. John 12 and in verse 48. John 12 and in verse 48 reads, He who rejects Me and does not receive My words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. See, Jesus is important. He's the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. And so I need to follow His words because as John 12 points out, I'm going to be judged by Him and we already saw that because Jesus is who He claimed to be, He's going to come again and we're going to give an account. So we've got to make sure we're living by His Word because when we give an account, we want to make sure that we have the reward and we're not those that are eternally punished. So first and foremost, I've got to follow His Word. Number two, I've got to strive to be like Him. In Philippians chapter 2, we went there earlier, where Philippians 2 points out about how Him being the Son of God, how He didn't consider how He's equal with God. Look again at what it said in verse 5. He's just been telling them in verses 3 and 4, or verses 1 through 4, about the need to not, to let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And in verse 4, not to look out on your own interest, but also on the interest of others. And here's what he says in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about him being in the form of God, and how he doesn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of the bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. How he ultimately humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Verses 5 through through 11 are not Paul just making commentary on Christ. Well, 5 
chapter 11 is, is him telling us, just as you need to, you need to have the mind of Christ because you need to see others better than yourself. You need to look out for the interest of others just as Jesus did by humbling himself to the point of death. And you need to imitate that. You need to have that mindset. If Jesus had considered himself better than others, he wouldn't have come and died for us. But He did. He humbled Himself to the point of death, even the death on the cross, according to verse 8. So we need to make sure we imitate Him. As we already saw earlier in 1 Corinthians 11 and in verse 1, the imitators, Paul told those to imitate Him as He imitated Christ. We need to strive to be like Christ. And finally, Christ is important, so I need to understand that my will should be put to death for His will. Again in Galatians 2 and in verse 20. In Galatians 2 and in verse 20, that he's been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We've got to put to death our will. You know, see, Jesus is the theme throughout the Bible because we need forgiveness of sins. And we have that, and we can be buried in the waters of baptism to have those sins washed away. But if that's simply where it ends, then we've done no good. But even after we've obeyed the gospel, we strive to follow His will. We strive to be like Him. And we've got to put to death our will. Because only then and only then, when we put our will to death, can we truthfully follow Christ. Because then we're not going to strive to turn back to what we want to do. But we'll follow His word. If we don't crucify our will and put our will to death, then when we have something we want to do that conflicts with the word of God, we'll do what we want to do. We've got to understand that Jesus is important because He came and He died for us. And so I've got to be willing to put to death my will for His will. And live my life for Him. Just as Paul said that He had done. The Bible, what is the theme? The theme is of the Messiah. The Old Testament said He is coming. The Gospel said He is here. And in the Acts through Revelation tell us that He has already come, but He will come again. And when He comes again, we're going to give an account for the life that we have lived. The question is, are you ready to give an account? We don't know when the Lord will return. It'll be as a thief in the night. Matthew chapter 25 or 24 tells us that of that day and of that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, but the Father only. We don't know when we're going to give an account. The Lord could come back this very evening. The question is, are we ready to give an account if He does come back today? If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not ready to give an account. But you can be. If you've heard the Word of God and you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that He is who He claimed to be as we have seen Him to be, then are you willing to repent of your sins, to confess that faith that you know Him to be the Son of God, and then be buried in the waters of baptism to rise and walk in the newness of life? And then you know that if He does come back, that you have the assurance of heaven. Maybe you're here and you served Him, but somewhere along the line you've fallen away. And if you're willing to acknowledge that sin and to repent of it, then we'll pray with you and for you for God to forgive you. But no matter what your need is, if we can assist you this evening in any way, would you not come forward as together we stand and as we sing?